as we come now before the Word of God. Can you all hear me? I can't always tell if I'm on. Give me a thumbs up. All right. Uh, beep there. Thank you. Um, always new things. As we come now to the Word of God, if you've got a Bible, uh, you can read with me. Uh, if you turn to Exodus in chapter 6, we'll read... Well, almost half of this uh, chapter, Exodus chapter 6 this morning. And before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, we know that every word of God proves true. Every word. Lord, we know that you are a shield to those who take refuge in you. This morning, would you be our refuge? As we come to your word, would you open our minds and hearts by your spirit? Would you bring us to trust you and to praise you just a little bit more? And we do give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Exodus in chapter 6. I'll begin here in verse 10 and read through the end of the chapter. So Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I'm of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, these are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him 
Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Pharaoh said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? This is the word of God. Now, for some of us, I recognize that what we've just read may sound like just a pile of family names. If this is another one of those very long uh, genealogies that all uh, tend to blur together, and, and, and when we read, we tend to kind of just skim over them. So maybe even as we were reading just now, you started to wonder, is he really going to read every one of these names? Yes, Yes, I am. <laughs> um, if we only read things like devotionals and other things outside of the Bible in order to read the Bible, we will tend to skip these sections entirely. But I was looking forward uh, to this section in particular when we started Exodus. I was looking forward to getting to dig into this part, uh, excited to get to examine this list of clans here. And, and I, I know that makes me sound like I must be real fun at parties. You know, I, it's, it's not a great conversation starter to say, hey, you know, the sons of Merari are Mali and Mushi. You know, that's not a fun conversation, at least. But... The reason why I was excited and am excited about this is not just because it's genealogy or just because they're lists of people. It's because this is a unique way of the story of Exodus unfolding. And in genealogies like these, there is usually buried treasure there if we're willing to dig. So we will dig. But before we actually dig into this to try to unpack it, I need to say up front that some, some people, when they look at genealogies like this in the Bible, will accuse the Bible and even accuse God of being racist. That when we see these lists of clans and families, somehow in people's mind it seems to say that Israel is better than other races. Maybe that Israel is some sort of preferred pedigree, that there's some sort of pure blood here. And we know that, that racism is a real major problem. It's an evil that the Bible pushes against, but that's not what's happening here. Racism is not the issue here. We'll see later in Exodus, after the plagues are complete, that when Israel comes out of Egypt, many Egyptians go along with them. And God actually gives directions about how they're to bring those Egyptians in, how to make them part of Israel as one single mixed multitude. 
So genealogies in the Bible are not about segregating out the supremacy of a particular people. Genealogies are about organizing and explaining the people. And if you read through the Bible regularly, you may notice that genealogies are actually fairly common in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. We see genealogies as early as chapter 5 of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 5, we see the tracking from, from Adam down through the days of Noah. And we also see pages and pages and pages of genealogies in the book of Numbers, lists of all the tribes and all their responsibilities. I guess it would be no surprise, because the book, at least in English, is named Numbers. It makes sense that we'd have numbers of people. But what's interesting about this genealogy is its position here in the story. Initially, Something about this list of names seems out of place here. Seems like an interruption here. I mean, if we were listing out names of people, it would feel natural to, to do it at the beginning of the book of Exodus. I mean, if you read the first few verses in Exodus, it kind of starts almost genealogically anyway. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Reuben Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, and on and on and on. And there might be a good place to then put this, but not here. That's not where Moses puts it. Or maybe we might expect that he would put this list of names in chapter 2 in the account where we see Moses born and placed into the Nile and then drawn out, rescued out of the Nile. That might be a good place to put his family heritage. And yet Moses chooses to put this here. This is not just spilled ink, <laughs> you know, some sort of accident. Oops, you know, I forgot I should put in the families. And so, uh, you know, I've already written five chapters, so I'll just put it in now. This genealogy is an intentional interruption. And it's meant to tell us something here. It's part of advancing the story of Exodus. So now as we dig into this and start to unpack it, I want in this time to ask three questions. The three questions are these. Who do we see here? Why are they here? And where do they take us? So if you're a note taker, there you go. Throwing you a bone. Nice, tidy summary. Who do we see here? Why are they here? And where do they take us? Let's do the first one. Question one. Who do we see here? We know all genealogies in the Bible, and virtually anywhere else, but especially in the Bible, all these genealogies are selective. If every single person were included in the family tree here, uh, it would just be a massive encyclopedia. The Bible's already big enough already, but it would just be too big for us to even carry around. It's not the author's intention to be comprehensive about the family tree anyway. We know there are times in the genealogies where they function kind of like one of those folding telescopes. You know how you see them in the pirate movies where they can kind of collapse it in on each other? That generations are sometimes 
squeezed together or folded upon each other. So sometimes we see uh, grandsons or great-grandsons just called son of so-and-so, and then generations are skipped. That's typical language of the culture. That's not problematic for us here. But he's highlighting particular things and skipping others. We also know there are some times where he focuses more on some families and less on others. That's a way to guide the story, to tell the story. So we want to know here now, who is it that Moses includes? The genealogy itself, if we learn how to read them, tells us where to put our focus. And I know this next little part will be a little bit tedious because there's a number of names in here, but, but, but stick with me, we can do this, okay? Let's track with the, the logic of this genealogy. It opens in verse 14 like this. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Name, 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 name. These are the clans of Reuben. So we're seeing here that Israel is somehow the focus, and Reuben now is the firstborn. Uh, he, and so we've got these tribes. Reuben's the first of the tribes. He's the oldest. So it would make sense that the genealogy then starts with him. We've got Reuben the firstborn. The next verse, in verse 15, is now the sons of Simeon. Name, 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 name. Some explanation about a woman. And then the clans of Simeon. Simeon's the secondborn. That makes sense. We've got the firstborn, then the secondborn. Next verse, verse 16, is now these are the uh, names of the sons of Levi. Levi, of course, is the third oldest. So we see a pattern developing here. Firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn. There are 12 tribes of Israel, so we might expect that this pattern would continue that the author is going to go on and list each of the 12 tribes and some of their children, but that doesn't happen. None of the other nine tribes are even mentioned at all. The author has said Reuben, firstborn, Simeon, secondborn, Levi, thirdborn, and then he stops and camps here on the tribe of Levi and begins to expand out his sons and his sons and his sons. So there's something unique then here about Levi too that now cues us into how to guide the reading of the rest of the story. We're given extra information in verse 16 about Levi. How old he is. Levi was 137 years old when he died. And if you've got a Bible in front of you and you're looking at it, if you scan down the list for the numbers when the ages are given, you'll notice that this is pretty rare. There's dozens of names given, but only three of them are given with their age when they died. There's Levi, who's 137, and then Levi has three sons, and one of them is given his age, Kohath. Kohath is 133, Kohath has four sons, and one of those sons is given his, name, his age, Amram. Amram is, a, is 137. So the author is focusing us, focusing, focusing. Now, where does it go from Amram? We're told here, after Amram, no more about people's ages. And part of that reason, I think, is because after Amram, his sons are still living at the time of the writing of this. Amram's sons are Moses and Aaron. The genealogy then is funneling us to Moses and Aaron. 
And it will continue past Moses and Aaron, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But we should note here that we are seeing all of these branches of one single tree. They're all connected, all part of the same family, and it is a good reminder to Moses and especially to the people that Moses is one of these branches. You know, Moses might say to the people then, yes, I know I was raised by an Egyptian princess in Pharaoh's house. Yes, I know I've spent the last 40 years in the foreign land of Midian, but I am still part of you. Our roots are still the same roots. We share the same uncles, same aunts, same grandparents. We even have the same great-great-grandpa. So who we see here is primarily Moses and Aaron as part of a broader family tree. That's our first one. Who we see here is Moses and Aaron as part of the family tree. Now, almost more importantly, why are they here? That's our second question. Why are they here? In other words, why is the genealogy put here in the narrative? Let's talk about, just, just for a moment, where we are in the story of Exodus. We've seen in the previous chapter, chapter 5, that there Moses obeyed, finally, obeyed the call of God. That he went into Pharaoh, as the Lord had told him, and said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh didn't listen. In fact, he made their slavery harder, and the people of Israel were crushed. That's what happened before here. Now, what's about to happen in chapter 7 is that Moses is about to return to Pharaoh for a second time and say again, Pharaoh, let my people go. And again, Pharaoh won't listen. But his continued refusal to listen now is about to trigger the beginning of the plagues. We're about to see some of the most famous parts of the book of Exodus here. So just as we're on the cusp of this epic clash between Moses and Pharaoh, between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the gods of Egypt, just as we're on the edge of this, we get this pause for a long list of names. So, why? This isn't just a, a, a cliffhanger, you know, when you're reading a, a novel and it just drops you off or to, you're, you're wondering, what happens to these other people? This isn't just to, you know, hype up the suspense. If you watch those TV shows, like singing competitions, they say, you know, and the winner is announced after this commercial break. And, you know, everyone groans, of course. That, 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 this is not a commercial break. This genealogy is somehow part of the story. The question then is how? How is it part of the story? If we look at the final verse as to how this whole section ends, in verse 30 we hear this, Moses said to the Lord, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? 
That's a unique turn of phrase there. I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And we've actually heard him say these exact same words before, not very long ago. If you rewind back to what we read just a little bit before in verse 12, we see it again at the end of that verse. How shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm of uncircumcised lips. Moses doesn't say this twice. This is part of an old literary writing style called inclusio. It's a fancy term now. Tuck that away in your memory for some trivia day, maybe years down the line. It's called an inclusio, when you put one thing on one end and the same thing on the other, even though that word inclusio, to me, sounds like an, I don't know, an Agatha Christie novel or, or something. But an inclusio is functions like a frame around a picture. It's telling us that what is between the ends of the inclusio are to be set apart as a single unit. And this frame that's around this picture of the genealogy is actually telling us in some way that it's connected to Moses' question, how is Pharaoh going to listen to me? That's why this genealogy is fitting especially here. It's at this particular moment, when, Pharaoh, when Moses is about to go back in before Pharaoh, that we're about to see the Lord unroll his signs and wonders in Egypt, that Moses is asking, how will Pharaoh listen to me, that we pause to see this. We've already heard the Lord's answer to Moses' question. Back in chapter 4, when Moses was before the Lord at the burning bush, you know, remember Moses was making all these excuses. Lord, I'm not eloquent enough. You know, I, I, I don't have enough. Uh, I'm too slow of speech. I'm too slow of tongue. And the Lord has said, Moses, I've already sent your brother Aaron to go with you. So we already know that, that Aaron is part of the answer. But the, the, the genealogy here now expands upon that answer. Is now putting leaves on the tree. It does that in a few ways in particular. One, it takes the focus off of Moses. If you actually read through this, in one sense, the river or the flow of the lineage flows in the direction of Moses. But in another sense, Moses then, once you get to him, gets set on the banks of the river. Moses, we know, has a wife, Zipporah, got a couple of kids, Gershom, Eliezer, but none of these are mentioned. Not his wife, not his kids, not his grandkids. It mentions Moses and stops at him, but instead it mentions the wife of Aaron and Aaron's kids and follows his lineage down the river. It takes the, mo the focus off of Moses. It also emphasizes Aaron especially as a Levite that he's from the tribe of Levi. We know the Levites were unique amongst the 12 tribes in the sense that they were set aside by God as priests. That priests could only come from the tribe of Levi. And the primary role of a priest is to stand between God and the people. That the priest was to be a sort of bridge between God and the people. And that's exactly what Aaron, this first high priest, is about to be, that he'll be a bridge between Moses and Pharaoh. 
And lastly, in this genealogy, it also puts Moses and Aaron together as a unit. The summary at the end of the genealogy, uh, where is it? Verse 36, kind of goes back and summarizes. These are the Moses and Aaron whom the Lord said such and such and such. It starts by saying, these are the Moses and Aaron, and then in verse 27 ends, it's this Moses and this Aaron. It's hard to hear this in English, especially in translations this way, but the Hebrew of this is pretty clear. The words for this and these here are the same word, grammar here. Just give me 10 seconds. It's the same word, a singular pronoun that's usually translated as he. So this might sound odd in English, but we, it, it would be fitting to translate it this way. He is Aaron and Moses. And the summary at the end, he is Moses and Aaron. They are bound together as a unit. So if I can summarize all of this, the genealogy then is put here in this particular moment, just before Pharaoh, just before Moses walks into his courtroom and Pharaoh is afraid that he won't listen to give us some perspective. That Moses is not the center focus. That Moses has a bridge, a go-between in his brother Aaron. And that Moses is not going alone. That's why we find these people here. That was our second question. That brings us to our third and final question, and I think it's the biggest one, which is really, where does this take us? Where does this take us? All genealogies in the Bible are carrying us along. They are all taking us places. So, for example, if you open up the New Testament to the very beginning, in the first book, in the first chapter of the book, you see in Matthew chapter 1 a genealogy. In fact, the very first words are the, of the New Testament are, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And where this genealogy takes us, one is to connect the Old Testament to the New Testament to remind us that it's all one story. It traces all the way back 2,000 years of history. It starts with, you know, Father Abraham, but then it ends, it culminates with Jesus. That whole river is flowing to Jesus. In many ways, that's true of the whole Bible, that it's a river that's flowing us to Jesus, that Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater Aaron, that we're experiencing a greater exodus out of sin. So the point of the Matthew genealogy is to flow us to Jesus. In the genealogy here in Exodus, however, it's clear that it's telling us something about Moses and Aaron. But if you pay close attention to it, the river of lineage does not flow to them. It flows through them and then on past down the river. 
does not lead us to Moses and Aaron. It leads us through them and, and then on by. While the Matthew genealogy ends with Jesus, it lands and plants there. The Exodus genealogy doesn't end with Moses and Aaron. They're just in the middle of the list, not at the end. In fact, if I were to say, find Moses in this genealogy, it might take you a second. You'd have to sift through all the names to actually dig, read, to find it. It's in, it, it kind of, he's kind of buried uh, in the middle of the whole thing. So in one sense, Moses has a special place in this line. But in another sense, Moses is just not all that special. Moses just isn't all that special. And that's actually really good news, both for the people and especially for Moses. Because at this moment, it might seem for Moses, as he's preparing to go into the king of Egypt, that the whole world rests on his shoulders. It might seem to him and to the people that the whole fate of Israel hangs in the balance and he holds the string that it all somehow depends upon him. And that's not a great place to be. It can be easy for some of us to get stuck in that mindset. We know in some sense we're all special. We tell our kids that, and we should. But in another sense, we might feel the weight of the moments and even feel it so heavy that we can become paralyzed by them. Fear begins to creep in. You know, what if I, what if I take the wrong job? Or what if I retire at the wrong time? What if I, what if I marry the wrong person? Or what if I make the wrong choice about a particular medical procedure? Or what if I say the wrong things to my kids and end up screwing them up? What if I go into Pharaoh and he doesn't listen? What if? What if? What if? We know that none of this changes the fact that God has still called Moses. Moses still needs to obey God, to follow him, and Moses still needs to do the best he can with God's wisdom and God's grace to speak to Pharaoh as he has been called to do. But even in light of that, this intentional disruption in the genealogy forces us first, before we even go into the throne room, to stop and take a full step back and just look. To see that there are generations that have come before, that there are generations that are still coming after, and the Lord is God over all That like we hear in the book of Ecclesiastes, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. It is good for us to remember that we are not the center of the story. 
even if you're as famous as Moses, that people make movies about you a few thousand years after you've been alive. You are not the center of the story. That's God's goodness to you. As we learn that, that will humble us before the God who is the center of the story. It will make us wise before others. It will strengthen our faith and bring us to trust in the Lord who's everlasting. That's where this takes us. But I can't close without one final observation just because I could not let it go. <laughs> one last bit here about where this takes us. And if genealogy isn't your thing, well, maybe this is just a hair more exciting. If you look at this genealogy, you may notice that at the very end of it, where is it? In verse uh, 25, the very last person mentioned is a man named Phineas. Phineas here is named as the grandson of Aaron. And as Moses is writing out this genealogy, he probably ends here, at least in part, because just at the time of writing, there were no other adults after Phineas. You know, he was probably this young adult, and he was the youngest generation that was living at the time of the writing. But it's interesting to note that of this entire generation that could be mentioned, there's only one person who's named in that generation, Phineas. Surely there are many others who he could have named, but he only intentionally singles out this one guy. Do you recognize his name, Phineas? Many of us might not. If Phineas doesn't sound familiar, it's because we only really know one event about this guy, Phineas. And boy, it's intense. If you think uh, the book of Numbers is all about just lists of families, think again. I won't read it. You can read it on your own if you wish. But in Numbers chapter 25, here's the summary of what occurs. A plague hits the nation of Israel and kills thousands of people. This plague in particular, we're told, is a result of Israel's sin. And this plague was single-handedly stopped by the man Phineas. When Phineas went into a couple who is in the middle of an, I'll call it, intimate act... He goes into them with his spear and pierces them both through with his single spear. And the plague stops. Yikes. By the way, I don't, I don't recommend this as an approach to stopping plagues. You know, social distancing is probably preferred to carrying around spears. We know this is a unique incident here. And this is a complex scene that I don't want to make light of. It's very serious, and we don't have time to unpack it all today. But I do want to mention here that when it is all over, the Lord then speaks to Phineas, this last man of Moses' genealogy. And he says, Phineas, you have atoned for the people of Israel. In other words, you have covered over their sin. 
You have saved them from a much worse death. You have turned away my wrath. And Phineas, I make a covenant of peace with you, and I have given to you a perpetual priesthood. That is, that the priesthood will continue to flow through you. This river will now continue to flow. Moses' genealogy ends with Phineas, but it's not really ending there. For Moses, who is now just on the brink of this clash with Pharaoh, he is just in the middle of a very long story. And this genealogy is causing him, his people, and now us to lean forward. Not only into the Exodus, but through it, far beyond the Exodus. This river is now flowing to the very feet of Jesus, the priest forever who will save us all. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we ponder these things and take them into our hearts, would you humble us before you so that you would raise us up? Lord, would you give us an eternal comfort that's anchored in you? Give us perspective here to see you as our God, Would you cause us in these things to trust you more? And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.